Cellist Jay Shulman grew up in a family of professional musicians exposed to the best concert and studio artists of the day. His father, cellist Alan Shulman, was celebrated throughout his life for his work with the NBC Orchestra under Toscanini and his performances and arrangements for a diverse group of classical, jazz, and popular entertainers. Recently, Jay has re-released his father's project, The New Friends of Rhythm, sides recorded in the late 30s and 1947 of a group of his classical pals who recorded jazz arrangements of classical themes and sold over 20,000 records, an impressive number for the time. Jay talked with me about the rich musical experience he's had throughout his life and his father's unique approach to jazzing the classics. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I presented an all-Shulman concert in Hudson, New York. And it was one of those, I never sang for my father situations, but <laughs> uh-huh. he was there. And I put, I got a colleague of his, Charlie Russo, a wonderful clarinetist, and we did several of the pieces for clarinet and uh, string quartet. And at the end of the program, everyone said, where can I get a CD of this music? And I realized there isn't one. So that put the thought in my head. And I realized that I couldn't afford to underwrite the cost of a new recording. So I did know that in the NBC archives, there were these wonderful NBC symphony recordings of... Allen's music. So I wrote NBC, and I didn't hear back from them, and I wrote them again, and then they said, well, the reason you haven't heard from us is that no one's ever asked to do this before. So they agreed very graciously to give me, grant me a license, and all of the artists who did the original broadcast in the 40s and 50s were absolutely thrilled that I was doing this because they thought they were were lost forever. Uh. And I went to the Library of Congress, and I had some recordings from my father's collection on acetate, or lacquer, as the purists say, um, which the library didn't have. But the library received the NBC collection on these 16-inch broadcast transcription discs, and they were in immaculate condition. So we got very good fidelity from the era. We... Uh, transferred them. I worked with a wonderful engineer named Brian Peters, who's based in the Albany area. And we put together uh, a CD with a working title of NBC Plays Shulman. Uh, Tuscanini did not conduct any of these, but the staff conductors at NBC did. And my father had come right out of Juilliard and at 22 was playing with Tuscanini in the NBC Symphony. But part of their tasks, their assignments as players uh, working for the network where they did all the commercial programs. So they did Voice of Firestone, um, the Metropolitan Opera Auditions of the Air, and my father was both a cellist, a composer, and an arranger. So he was frequently tapped to do the commercial programs as well. Was that unusual? Because I was struck with that in reading about him, that he did all of these things. Was that common? No. I didn't think so. His colleagues said that he had the best ears in the business. Mm. And in 1928, 
1938, the family came to New York from Baltimore, where he had received his early training at the Peabody, came to New York to pursue their musical education. His brother, wound Sylvan, my uncle, violinist, wound up playing in the pit of Jerome Kern's The Cat and the Fiddle. And he supported the family while my father got a Juilliard fellowship and went to study cello and composition at the Juilliard. It was during the Depression, and Alan was very fortunate. He went to, uh, he heard that George Gershwin was looking for an orchestra for Porgy and Bess. And he went to Gershwin and said, you know, do you have a place for a cello? And he said, I'm sorry, Mr. Shulman, I have all the cellists I need, but my friend Mr. Porter is casting for his new show, Anything Goes. <laughs> and in Just ni- thinking about getting to talk to these people, isn't it wonderful? So in 1934, at the age of 19, Alan got a job playing in the pit of Anything Goes. That word's poetic, I'm so pathetic that I always have found it best Instead of getting them off my chest To let them rest unexpressed I hate parading my serenading as I probably miss a ball But if this ditty is not so pretty At least it'll tell you how great you are You're the top You're the Colosseum, you're the top, you're the Louvre Museum, you're a melody from a symphony by Strauss, you're a Bendel Bonnet, a Shakespeare sonnet, you're Mickey Mouse, you're the Nile, you're the Tower of Pisa, you're the smile on the Mona Lisa. I'm a worthless check, a total wreck, a flop. But if, baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. You're the top. You're Mahatma Gandhi. You're the top. You're Napoleon Brandy. You're the purple light of a summer night in Spain. You're the National Gallery, your garbled salary, your cellophane. You're sublime, you're a turkey dinner, you're the time of the derby winner. I'm a toy balloon that's fainted soon to pop, but if baby I'm the bottom, you're the top. Cole Porter singing his composition, You're the Top, from his 1934 play, Anything Goes. In those days, the only way a young arranger could hear his um, work was Mm. to get it on the radio or get it on record. So there would be um, all these dance bands. Every hotel in New York had a staff orchestra. Many of them did weekly radio broadcasts. Many of them also had recording contracts. Leo Reisman, who backed up Fred Astaire, um, had a um, very successful career. And he bought some arrangements from Allen, and he was on his way as, as an arranger. So it was unusual, Mm. I think, that he wore those hats. Mm. And by the late 1930s, he felt confident enough of his ability 
and was seeking to find his voice. He wrote some smaller pieces, and then in 1941, his first great success was the theme and variations for viola. Initially for piano, he orchestrated it, and Emmanuel Vardy played the first performance with the NBC Symphony in March of Sylvan were violinist and cellist, respectively, of the Kreiner String Quartet. They auditioned as a group and were accepted into the NBC Symphony. Kreiner left NBC after a season, and the younger musicians were disappointed because he was paying himself more than his younger colleagues. So they formed their own quartet with Zeli Smirnoff, the father of Joel Smirnoff of the Juilliard Quartet, Louis Kievman, and with Sylvan and Allen on violin and cello. In 1939, they began recording for Columbia Records, and they specialized in what was then contemporary classical music. So they made the early recordings of the Bloch First Quartet, the Prokofiev First Quartet, the Shostakovich First Quartet, They gave the American premiere at Carnegie Hall of the Shostakovich Piano Quintet on a program that Benny Goodman appeared on and Paul Robeson. They also came up in the era of the radio days. And Alan, because he was arranging, uh, they went to a musician's party and he put his tongue firmly in his cheek and did a swing arrangement of the Tchaikovsky Andante Cantabile and they expanded the Stuyvesant Quartet to add a harpist, the wonderful Laura Newell, who was a pioneering woman harpist in New York in the era when there were no women in the business. And they added Tony Colucci on guitar and Harry Patton on bass. They had played with the NBC Chamber Music Society of Lower Basin Street. And they called themselves the New Friend of Rhythm. They did a couple of demos. They took them to uh, Dr. Frank Black, who was the head of uh, music at NBC. He was very excited about them. They were quickly signed by RCA Victor and in March of 1939 went into the studio and made their first recordings. Thank you. 
1939 recording of the New Friends of Rhythm with harpist Laura Newell, violinist Sylvan Schulman, guitarist Tony Colucci, and cellist Alan Schulman, father of my guest, cellist Jay Schulman. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. The New Friends of Rhythm were unique. Uh, in that era, the, many of the big bands recorded classical tunes. Um, but the New Friends of Rhythm were not jazz musicians. They were classically trained musicians. And Alan, as a young man in his 20s, growing up, had been listening to this music and decided to take the classical themes that they played as chamber music, as symphonic music, and to swing them. Mm. And they did it without a rhythm section, but um, Tony Colucci's guitar playing is like Freddie Green's in the Basie band. (laughs) That he just drives it in such a way. And these were released on 10-inch 78 records they did 16 sides for victor before the war as foxtrot records mm, mm. and they sold remarkably well um 20,000 copies in 1939 and 40 which, which was, was a huge number in that day mm. it was very big and they um recorded a transcription that heifetz had done by the Romanian violinist Dini Ku, and they called it Ku Dini Ku. And Heifetz- See, even the titles are cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue. <laughs> and Heifetz owned the copyright on this recording, so Victor shelved the record. But Heifetz heard the broadcast of the theme and variations, and he called my father up and said that he had heard the broadcast and he liked the piece very much. And Alan paused because he knew that Heifetz didn't call and make fan calls. And then he followed up, Heifetz that is, saying, by the way, I've decided to let Victor release your record. Ah. So they released the record. It was a hit. And Heifetz, who was very encouraging of younger composers and was always looking outside of his standard core repertoire. And he heard that my father wrote a piece for the late Yuta Shapiro um, based on American folk songs. And he began from this suite based on American folk songs playing Cod Liver Isle. (laughs) <laughs> and he did it in recital. He played it at Carnegie Hall. And uh, in the 1950s, he recorded a collection of shorter works and included it on a RCA Victor LP.
one of the things that strikes me with this too, with all of these recordings that you've brought to me and that I've listened to in the Friends of Rhythm, is that when I would listen to some of the jazz musicians take classical themes, I have to admit, I've never been super crazy about that because it is kind of a, um, a lot of them were just jokes. They were taking this and they were doing it to be funny. Look, we can sort of swing the classics. And some of them are great and some of them don't appeal to me. And this is just one girl's opinion. This, they're just playing some great tunes. And they happen to be a classical group that's swinging. It just appeals to me because it actually has a very different attitude in how they approached it, if that makes sense. Do you know what I'm saying? They were embraced both by the jazz world and by the classical world. And I can see why. I can see why. Because it works on both levels. And the performances are wonderful. The playing is brilliant. And, um, but the war came and they disbanded for the war. And then after the war, um, John Kirby found mood in question and it had kind became a kind of cult, um, piece. It was cool in an era before there was cool jazz And he recorded it, and John Kirby had been married to Maxine Sullivan. And after the war, Maxine uh, was recording for an independent label called International Records. And International asked Alan to do some arrangements for Maxine, and they did. It was so successful that they went back into the studio in March of 1947 and reunited the group with the current personnel of the Stuyvesant Quartet, which now included uh, Bernard Robbins and Ralph Hirsch on violin and viola, respectively. And they recorded another six sides for International. But that was the end of the New Friends of Rhythm. And my father, at that point, had married, had started his family, was rejoined the NBC Symphony, um, was busy with the quartet. He was composing. He worked on his cello concerto, which was premiered in 1950 by Leonard Rose with the New York Philharmonic under Dimitri Metropolis. He wrote his Laurentian Overture, which was premiered in 1952 by the Philharmonic with Guido Cantelli. It was considered for the Pulitzer Prize that year. And in 1954, the NBC Symphony disbanded. And having to provide for his family, Alan, who had always done a fair amount of commercial work, began doing arrangements and original compositions. Mm. He worked very closely with Skitch Henderson. He played, uh, on, in addition to radio and television, he played on The Tonight Show, on The mm. Steve Allen Show. Oh, you have to talk about his collaboration with Steve because I'm a huge fan of Steve. I, I am not unique in that, as you know. But talk about this recording because I just think it's fabulous. Well, Steve was, uh, Steve and Allen glommed onto one other. <laughs> not surprisingly. Instantly, and Steve, of course, was a wonderful musician in addition to his many other talents. And he and Alan collaborated on a number of tunes, uh, one of which was a melody that Alan wrote called First Snow. And you remember in the Steve Allen program, there was, as Steve called it, a pretty girl with a billboard who used to come out and <laughs> announce next week's coming attractions. And they played this tune in the background. 
Steve liked the tune, and Jane Meadows, his wife, did too, and she suggested that they change the tune to Too Late the Spring. And Steve wrote a lyric, and it was recorded uh, twice, once by Barbara McNair, and Steve actually had Barbara on the program, and she introduced the tune. And then a year later, um, in a New York session with some very good jazz players, um, Irene Crowell sang it. So this is Too Late the Spring, sung by Irene Crowell with an ensemble directed by Steve Allen and music by Alan Shulman. Too late the spring No good the sun If you are not with me dad's favorite jazz people did he listen you said he listened to quite a bit of jazz so do you remember who any of did he comment on that or jazz composers or instrumentalists or singers McKinney's cotton pickers Thank you. 
got my brain in a whirl. Oh, her new kind of lovin' is all that I crave. Her new turtle dovin' has simply made me her slave. Oh, what a miss with a kiss full of this and then I vow. She's got a meat pad by it, she tells me lies. Then somehow, I found a new baby, I just had to fall. I found a new baby, she's a new kind of baby, that's all. Kenny's Cotton Pickers on I Found a New Baby. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. For a discography of the music played on our show and a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about my music and what I'm doing, and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit judycarmichael.com. My guest, cellist Jay Shulman, has devoted the last few years to reintroducing the world to the work of his father, composer-arranger-cellist Alan Shulman. Although Alan's training was as a classical musician, he knew and listened to jazz musicians of his time, which greatly influenced his work. He grew up in the swing era, and I remember as a kid... I was born in 1949 and sort of started paying attention around 1957 or 8. Mm. And he was listening to Miles Davis. Mm. He loved the arrangements of Gil Evans. He loved Robert Farnon. And those were the records that he listened to for pleasure. 
So it's very interesting that his taste grew, which, as you know, a lot of people, that isn't the case. They listen to music of their youth and they sort of stop. That's what they think was the best time, for whatever reason. And I find this all the time with people. I'll say, what do you listen to? And invariably, it's the music when they were in high school and college. They just seem to have stopped. And something else that you're reinforcing is many of the guests that I've had on the show that grew up in that era, Skitch included, music was just music to them. And it's such a beautiful lesson for all of us who are younger that didn't grow up in that era. They just listen to classical, then they listen to jazz. Over and over I have people tell me that are not necessarily musicians, that their parents would put on a symphony and then they'd put on McKinney's Cotton Pickers and then they'd put on Benny Goodman, then they'd put on opera. There was a beautiful mix and it was just music, which I think is, I, in my optimistic way, I hope that that's happening a bit more with iTunes and things like that because people can make their own playlists. So younger people, I'm now finding, I'll say, what's on your iPod? And it's a really eclectic mix of things. Maybe not as wide as we might like to think. They won't have opera next to the chieftains. But every now, you can hope (laughs) that they're doing more of that. So that's interesting. So your dad's taste really changed. Well, also, he was in the studios with the artists. So he recorded with Tony Bennett, with Aretha Franklin, with Elvis Presley. He toured with Frank Sinatra. And there was an interesting Sinatra connection because when during the war, Alan was in the service uh, in the Merchant Marine, uh, as they said, they fought the Battle of Sheepshead Bay. It was a morale-boosting orchestra, and many of the New York freelance musicians enlisted and spent the war years there. One of Alan's colleagues while he was there was Nelson Riddle. Ah. Nelson studied orchestration with Alan. I've got the world on a string Sitting on a rainbow Got the string around my finger What a world, what a life I'm in I got a song that I sing I can make the rain go Anytime I move my finger Lucky me, can't you see I'm in love Life is a beautiful thing As long as I hold the string I'd be a silly so-and-so If I should ever let it go I got the world on a string Sitting on a rainbow Got the string around my finger What a world, what a life I'm in love Life is a beautiful thing As long as I hold the string I'd be a silly so-and-so If I should ever let it go I got the world on a string Sitting on a rainbow Got the string around my finger What a world And this is the life 
you can hear Alan's influence in Nelson's later work with Nat King Cole, with Ella, with uh, Frank Sinatra, um, in the arrangements that he did for Reza Stevens. Reza Stevens, the great metropolitan opera diva of the 1940s. Uh, she was a f- very famous Carmen. Um, she sang uh, in De Rosenkavalier. And she was one of the initial crossover artists before Eileen Farrell, before Carrie Takanawa. And it, they did Goddard Lieberson, who was head of A&R at Columbia Records, asked Alan, who was well-known as an arranger, and to arrange these crossover albums. They did five collaborations between 1945 and 1947. So from 1945 studio recording, this is Reza Stevens singing Rogers and Hart's Lover with the orchestra conducted by my uncle, Sylvan Shulman, and arrangement by Alan Shulman. about your own playing because you're a musician as well and how all of this has influenced you and your playing and what your study was there was always music in our house um my parents met at Juilliard my mother was a pianist and she studied with Olga Samaroff who had been married to Stakowski before Greta Garbo and Gloria Vanderbilt and those celebrity affairs of the day. (laughs) Oh, them. And um, she had a teaching career or a a performing career. She performed with the National Symphony under Hans Kindler. She performed with the Syracuse Symphony. And she was teaching assistant to Madame Samaroff-Stakowski. And one day, Vili Capel came in to the class and his brilliance was just so dazzling that my mother said I can't compete with this and basically abandoned her professional career at that point and became a teacher and she taught her whole career. Um, My parents married just after the war and um, had four children. I have two sisters and a brother. Both sisters studied the piano. My brother is the guitarist Mark Schulman who's recorded with 
many, many singer-songwriters. And so there was always music in the house. My parents' social life involved their musician friends primarily. So there was chamber music in the house. We went to all of my father's concerts. He was performing all the time. And when I was eight years old, I picked up the cello one day and was asked, would you like lessons? And I went to study with a colleague of his, Tony Sophus, who was a member, had just left the New York Philharmonic, and I began studying. So I studied all through high school and college, and uh, being a child of the 60s, I also had a rock and roll band. And Alan worked in the studio orchestra at Hullabaloo, and Barbara Streisand's music director, Pete Matz, was conducting the orchestra there. Um, so at 16, I got a chance to meet the Rolling Stones, which was really a thrill. <laughs> oh, this is so great. And so I kept up my rock and roll uh, chops for... What did you play in rock and roll? I was the like... singer in the band. Oh. I was the singer. I was going to say, I don't know that I've ever seen rock cello. I'm sure it exists somewhere. Well, but... there is. There's a yeah. wonderful guy named Aaron Minsky who mm. calls himself Von Cello, and he's a kind of crossover guy in mm. today's world. I figured and there had to be someone. Somebody named Sean Grissom, who you may have even heard playing in the subway. He calls himself the Cajun cellist. So he's another one who's kind of crossed over mm, from the class. But you were the singer. I was the singer in this band. Mm. But I continued, I realized that there were people who really were rock and rollers. and I really, You were a faux rocker. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I brought some uh, musical skills to the band that probably made them a better band. But There's I, a lot of people, I have to tell you, and I'm saying this mainly for our audience because it won't be a surprise to you, but over the years, I've had various rock people come to my concerts and I've gotten to know some very interesting people and I have expressed surprise in the beginning oh you're into this kind of music or something like that and many of them have parents who are classical musicians and I've met a lot of these people that know a lot more about music than people think they think oh those rock guys are playing two chords but I'll hear their band and it will have more than two chords it'll have some very interesting harmonies and then go well yeah my dad's a conductor yeah my mom's a a violinist so there's a history of this sort of thing that I have seen it's interesting anyway continue but having realized that I went on to play I was in Maine for a while I played in the Bangor Symphony and the Portland Symphony I came to New York I started freelancing in the early 70s so I got to play with uh, Rod Stewart at the Garden and he's one of the people I'm thinking of who <laughs> actually no it's funny who is a big jazz fan and classical and all of that so well, anyway it's clear from his current recordings and the direction the how much he saying. loves that and I played on a track on uh, uncredited on John Lennon's Walls and Bridges mm -hmm. record and uh, played with Aretha Franklin and Shirley Bassey at Carnegie Hall and. So I did some freelancing, but I was also working for a music publisher for several years. I worked in a violin and bow shop uh, for several years and then began playing full-time. And I've been playing with the Long Island Philharmonic since 1980 and various other orchestras. And I, I teach. I've taught for many years, and which I enjoy very much. And have... Um, I sort of fell into producing these recordings. I've done five now, and, uh, you know, as the Ruddle said, all you need is cash. <laughs> I probably could do 
I'm, oh, that. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to do five more at least before the CD dies. And the new technology is emerging fast, but that may create new opportunities yet. Mm. And my feeling is I don't want this great music from the 30s, 40s, and 50s lost. And so I feel it's both a way of celebrating the music, honoring my father, and bringing it to a new audience, a new generation. My guest, cellist Jay Shulman, on his father Alan's composition, Serenade for Piano and Cello. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. What has been a surprise in this process? Have you been surprised? Because you were very familiar with the music anyway, and you lived in a musical family, so music was a conversation all the time. But in this whole journey of bringing your father's music to everyone else. Has there been anything that surprised you about it, or what have you learned? Well, I've learned the mechanics of the record business and all the paperwork and the licensing. I mean, kind of takes the glamour out of it. But the bottom line is really the pleasure that people derive from the music. Alan's career began when he was still in his teens and in the early swing era, or actually before the swing era. But it continued. Uh, he wound up in the early 70s arranging for the singer-songwriter Chris Williamson. And there are several of his charts on her first LP, um, which was just 
release re- reissued on compact disc. Mm. So he did evolve over time, and it was a highly uh, sophisticated sense of the business. And his colleagues admired and respected his gifts. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Talk about top brass. In 1958, Alan was playing in the uh, orchestra in the Steve Allen Show, which was directed by Skitch Henderson. There were a lot of great players there, Doc Severinsen, Clark Terry, Joe Wilder. And And it was a real jazz-feeling band then, I think. Because I think Skitch encouraged that. He and Steve loved jazz. Yes. That's the other thing, because I know he told me that any time a musician was on, that to him that was more impressive and more important than the blonde in the sequin outfit. Yes. He'd rather have the musician sit next to him and talk, which really makes it stand out to all of us who are musicians that the musicians very seldom sit next to Jay Leno or David Letterman. True. It's very different. So 
the guys would kind of hang out on the fives and sometimes play. And Alan decided to write a short piece in three movements uh, for brass, and he called it Top Brass, which was the name of a hair preparation that helped (laughs) stick up in the front. But it was also a kind of sly um, uh, dig at the military, too, I think. It's subtitled Six Minutes for Twelve. He wrote, um, he knocked it off. I mean, he worked phenomenally fast. I mean, it's just in blazing speed. Guys went in, they read it, Skitch loved it. He gave the premiere 50 years ago in May with the Portland, Oregon Orchestra. He did it in Red Rocks. He did it in Minneapolis. Um, and the piece began to catch on. And the brass section of the Pittsburgh Symphony did it. brass section of the Chicago Symphony did it. And ultimately it was published. It went out of print. I took the copyright back. And as part of my mission, I'm publishing producing, promoting, and performing my father's music. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this and introducing me to this music. I love that you sent it to me, that you heard the show and wanted to be on it. And I'm happy to be able to bring this music, hopefully, to more listeners. And they should all visit your website. What's your website? The simplest thing to do is Google Alan Shulman, A-L-A-N-S-H-U-L-M-A-N, and the first thing that comes up will be the link to our website. I've oh, got that one is of those very way. complicated URLs that 
you know, by the time you get paper. No, it's fantastic. Everybody knows about Google. That's great. And no, Google is not a sponsor of this show. That we- <laughs> There's a disclaimer. <laughs> There's a disclaimer. Thank you so much. It's Judy, really been you. fun. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to Chalice J. Shulman. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired from iTunes or at TalkShoe.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD, Trio. I'm on piano with my Cashamon sax and Chris Flory on guitar. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, or to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about what I'm doing in my music, visit judycarmichael.com. Special thanks to Stephen Linda Plotnicki, Gilda and Henry Block, the Walsh Family Foundation, and our webmaster Megan Lewis. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and from Steinway & Sons. Additional support is provided by the American Hotel, Sag Harbor, New York. Visit online at theamericanhotel.com. And from Jazz Festival Brazil, Brazil's largest jazz festival presented in eight cities across the country. Visit jazzfestivalbrazil.com.br for more information.